Hi, I'm Carrie, your friend, the therapist. On this podcast, we are skipping the small talk and working to destigmatize mental health through intimate conversations with everyday people about their mental health journeys and how they stay well in a world that feels like it's falling apart. This season, we are exploring what it means to stay well and find healing after experiencing religious harm. Please note that this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for mental health support with a licensed professional. If you want to be part of the conversation, please follow the show on Instagram at your friends, the therapist pod, or send me an email at carrie at carriefillion.com. Thank you so much for being here, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. My guest today is Megan Von Fricken, second time guest on the podcast. Uh, Megan is a licensed clinical social worker with a virtual psychotherapy practice where she specializes in helping people recover from religious harm. Megan, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me back. Glad to be here. Yeah, Yeah, I will link um, your first episode in the show notes um, just if people want to get a little background information on you. because today we're going to dive a little bit more expansively into some other topics, but to lay some groundwork on who you are and your relationship to this work, what is your relationship to high control religion, either in the past or currently? So I come from a background with fundamentalist evangelical Christianity. So um, growing up believing in the, the Bible is the literal inspired word of God, Um, young earth creation. I was homeschooled, so very much indoctrinated through my education as well. And uh, it was in my 20s that I began deconstructing. And then it was kind of like this slow build. And then all at once, when I hit about Mm. 30 years old, where I kind of walked away officially and, you know, decided within myself that that wasn't a religious orientation that I agree to really on any level. Um, So at this point, I I do consider myself spiritual. Um, I guess if we would have to put a label on it, although I don't like labels at this point, but if I had to put a label on it, I would say I'm agnostic. Um, You know, I do think that there are still some things that are, that we can't really explain fully. Um, But I also don't believe that there is this angry guy in the sky who's making all these rules about how we're supposed to live our lives and going to send us to hell um, mm-hmm. if we, you know, don't follow the rules or, or follow the prescribed path for salvation. So yeah. that's kind of a very, very Reader's Digest version of where <laughs> I'm at right now. Yes. And I know that you on other podcasts, some that will be released in the future, you will be sharing more in depth your story. Um, So we won't go super into that here, except for the ways that it is relevant to our topic. However, one question I do have from what you just said is you said that you were deconstructing slowly and then all at once. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if there was something that sort of triggered that all at once when you were around 30. Yeah. So when I was still in my 20s, I was living in the community that I was raised in and I was working there. And a lot of my friends or all of my friends were church 
community people. So even though I started to feel in my body that I don't want to be here, I don't want to be a part of this. And I, I, I didn't know why. It just was something I felt that I didn't want to be doing anymore. Um, I still continue to go and to be immersed in that community because that's where all my ties were. You know, I was yeah. so connected to everyone. Um, <clears throat> when I was 27, I got married and moved across the country. And my husband at the time, we're divorced now, um, but he was in the military and he was stationed out there. So when I moved out of the community that I was born and raised in, we never got established in a church mm. in Washington state. And he and I had never really connected over religion anyway, even though he has a high control religion background too. It was just never part of our relationship because we were long distance the whole time we were dating. Mm. So when he was stationed out there, he didn't get established with the church. When I moved out there, I didn't either pursue that. And mm. so once I was out of it and away from that community, I began to develop relationships with people from different backgrounds and who had different spiritual beliefs and ideas. And I became more open. And as soon as I kind of experienced the world, a world outside of that tiny community, it just all fell away very quickly. And I realized I just, you know, that uh, the rules and the the dogma and the structure, it didn't seem to align with how humanity operates at all. Mm. Um, so mm. that was kind of the all at once piece where it was like, you know, when you're going up a roller coaster for that initial mm. <laughs> drop. And that's what it was like through my 20s. And then mm. I got to Washington. And it was like, whew, and the rest yes. was this crazy roller coaster ride. In the, you know, in a good kind of way, kind of terrifying at times, but also exhilarating and wonderful. Yeah. Do you still feel like you're on the roller coaster? Yeah, I don't know if I'll ever be off the roller coaster. Yeah, I agree. That's my experience. <laughs> I think the roller coaster has kind of calmed down a little bit, or maybe I know how to anticipate it a little bit better. It, it's not so crazy um, as it was early on, but yeah, it definitely still holds surprises. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I think a lot. I ask that question because I think a lot of the times when I have people on the podcast, I'm like looking for like, a, oh, you too? Yes, yeah. me too. <laughs> yeah. um, and actually, that that makes me think of how you and I kind of first connected. I think on Instagram, you were looking for somebody to read an article you had written. Yeah. Um, and I was like, I'll do it. We like hadn't had really any interaction. I was like, this sounds really interesting. I want to read it. And then I read it. Um, and I was like, whoa, our stories are so similar. Um, yeah. and do you mind if I share the, the title of that article? I don't know if it ever got released. Go ahead. I but... haven't, no, I haven't gotten it published yet, but go ahead and okay. share whatever you recall. <laughs> um, well, I, the title, because it's still in my Google drive, this is why it's like fresh in my mind. I come across it every now and then. Um, it was, I think called my little family cult. Yes. Right? Yep. Yes. Um, and so I think that's what we want to talk about today is the relationship or intersection of family trauma and religious trauma. 
Um, so I, I gave all that to say, I read that article and I was like, whoa, yeah, this is mirrors my experience in a lot of ways and not in all ways, but in a lot. So, um, yeah, I wonder if that is a good place to start is why that title of that article for you? Mm-hmm. What, what about that was really important to like get on paper, even if it's not out in the, in the world totally yet? So for me, everything fell into place when I began to understand how destructive cults operate And when I began to understand how the churches that I was indoctrinated into fit the criteria of these destructive religious cults. And so reading the work of Stephen Hassan, I talk about him all the time, Combating Cult Mind Control, changed my life. Everybody needs Mm -hmm. to read it. Mm -hmm. Um, He talks in his book about mini cults. And a mini cult, he defines as 12 or fewer people. And so he was the one who really helped me understand that cults aren't just these large groups or large or, or religions, you know, or religious groups. They can be as small as a family unit, and it can even be as small as an intimate partnership. And mm-hmm. so when we observe intimate partner violence and domestic violence relationships, that coercion and that power and control, that fits into what would be classified as a mini cult, technically. Mm, yeah. So part of my understanding of what happened to me, um, I had to understand this level of coercion and this mind control that happened um, because my experience didn't super fit into the religious trauma category. Mm. You know, trauma can be, um, we can view trauma pretty broadly. And I think that definition continues to kind of evolve and and different therapists and different professionals are going to have different ways of um, categorizing it, uh, I, I would say. But I didn't have the classic symptoms of what we think of with trauma with flashbacks or intrusive thoughts or heightened anxiety or strong aversions to things or, you know, those kind of really classic trauma symptoms. But something was still terribly wrong with my early experience and my experience in the church, but also my experience with my family. And when I understood indoctrination and mind control and coercion, I realized that my family had become a little family cult Mm -hmm. and that homeschooling us and keeping us completely isolated from the world and, and indoctrinating us to be very fearful of the world turned us into this little family cult. And I had to understand that. I think to make sense of the religious piece, but also some of the complexities with um, strained relationships in my family. Mm, yeah. So within your own experience and now sort of professionally working in this realm, what have you observed or learned about the relationship between 
little family cults or other types of family trauma and harm that happens in religious settings. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that this is something that I have read about specifically or observed talked about. And, and if somebody knows of somebody that has specifically written or talked about this, I would definitely want to give them credit. But one thing that I've noticed is that you have the larger religious cult. So for me, it was fundamentalist evangelical Christianity in these churches I was a part of. And then I see under them, almost every family is indoctrinated to create their own little mini cults within Mm -hmm. the church family. So family is such a a loaded word in these groups typically because we're the family of God and everybody's brothers and sisters in Christ and God the father. And, you know, there's a lot of language of family, but then you have this hierarchy that's passed down to these family units where then the head of the household is at the top of that hierarchy and really is indoctrinated to perpetuate this coercion within the family system as well. And so you have, you know, children who are brought into compliance and obedience and is prioritized and nurture and connection isn't typically as much of a priority. It's all about following the rules. Um, So that's sort of what I started to see as the connection, you know, how insidious it is, because it is truly a hierarchy that starts with an organization, but then they indoctrinate the family and then it can even go down, you know, to intimate partners and, and, you know, where does it stop? This is why Mm. it just, you know, I, I really focus in my work on helping people who were raised in high control religions. You know, a lot of people, with background in, in cult recovery may focus on people who are indoctrinated into cults, maybe as adults or who are lured in mm-hmm. and, and that piece of it. And that's what Stephen Hassan does in his work. Mm-hmm. But a lot of what I focus on are people like you and I <laughs> yeah. who were born into it. And we never even knew a different way. We were indoctrinated from the time we were in the cradle, right? Mm, yes. Yeah, I I feel similarly um to use really Christianese language like called to work with folks like myself who were born in and not called but I feel like it I I like kind of hate that I said that now because it's so loaded but that there it's a very unique experience I think um and it's like if you've lived it, you really get it in a different way than someone who maybe hasn't lived it. And I think people who haven't lived it offer a really wonderful perspective. <laughs> um, like I love my friends and my own therapist who was not raised this way because they can provide like a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something about being raised in this that is you only really get it if you've experienced it. Yeah. Um And I'm wondering for you and your work and in your study of Stephen Hassan's work, like, what do you think is, are the difference in maybe challenges for people who were raised in these high control groups versus people who are indoctrinated later in life? 
So he talks about something called the second self, which is your cult identity that develops Mm -hmm. over top of your authentic self. And it is who you become in order to survive within the cult setting. And for people who are indoctrinated as adults, they have more awareness, in my opinion, or closer access to (laughs) the authentic self who was their identity before they were indoctrinated. So when they're able to kind of break through that shell and they're kind of start to wake up, they can get back in touch with that former, more authentic version of themselves. And you and I both do parts work as well. And so I think the language of parts with internal family systems theory really comes into play here and is really helpful for a lot of people in understanding that. And I don't want to minimize the experience of people who are indoctrinated as adults because that coercion level of mind control can be total and complete and completely divorce people from their authentic selves and it goes somewhere else, you know, it goes dormant. So I don't want to minimize that at all. I think the difference that I've noticed in people who are raised in it and they come out, we call it waking up, they start waking up from this mind control. I don't even know who I am. I've never experienced a different version of myself besides what was expected of me, besides what I took on to survive in the system. And so that's often where we have to begin because people, it's not like they're returning to a former version of themselves. It's they are fi- like finding it and, and yes. figuring, figuring that person out and it, young stage. And I'm not to say, I do not want to say people that were raised in it are like children when they come out of it. But it's, you know, some people don't even know what their favorite color is. They don't even know what kind of foods they like. They don't know how to order at a restaurant because everything in these groups are so prescribed. And when you come out, you don't know what's me versus what is what I've become to be within this system to survive within this system. Yeah. Yes. That, yeah, that resonates so much. And I, I feel like in a lot of ways, my, like what you said, like, I don't want to call people children, (laughs) but I very much, like, I will take that on myself. And in many ways, I am not a child, right? Like, um, but in a lot of ways, I do feel very, childlike like part of my healing is approaching the world as if I was a child with the wonder and awe of a child but also um, I was not raised homeschooled but I was raised in a really small private Christian school and so I think a lot of my work in my 20s and 30s has been what does it actually look like to have a friend to be in relationship with people to rebel um like all these very normal developmental things that you're kind of that many people, I don't want to say like you should or shouldn't, like there is one right way to, to develop as a human, but that many people experience in adolescence um, that I certainly didn't because of being indoctrinated. So in a lot of ways, actually approaching learning about my emotions and my body as a child has been actually helpful for me to recognize in a lot of these ways. Like I was very young developmentally when I was coming out of um, religion. 
So there's no shame also, perhaps for folks who are like, that sounds like me, maybe I am a child, (laughs) but like, that's okay, because then you can work from there. Yeah, I, I always try to be really cautious with how I word these things when I write about it on social media. Mm -hmm. But I do think that we see with with parents, like, with I can speak to my parents. Um, there's a lot of emotional immaturity with parents in high control religions, and then that's sort of passed down to children. And so how can somebody who's sort of emotionally stunted developmentally also help their children to develop emotionally? And so you see that cycle continuing. And then I, I often also say, you know, once you're outside the structure that gives you all of the rules of exactly what to do and how to be, people tend to develop very, very quickly. People kind of catch up really quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's that roller coaster almost of all at once that I was talking about at the beginning. Yeah. Because once you understand your experience and you begin to access resources, people do catch up really quickly. It's not like you're you're going to be stuck, like you're going to have to just start over in the years of development and it's going to take yeah. you 30 years to be a 30 year old again or something. Right. Yes. So yes. There, there's a lot of a lot of hope there. And I see people, you know, who kind of develop so quickly and and transfer that into their relationships with others very, mm-hmm. very quickly, too. Yes. Yes. The the capacity for the human body and mind to learn and grow is just astounding. Um, and I feel it important to name that I, I work not just with religious trauma survivors, but also just with trauma survivors of all different <laughs> shades, I suppose. And this is a this is a common experience among a lot of people who experienced early childhood developmental trauma or family trauma. Um, certainly the way that religion impacts development, like has its own kind of unique colors uh, or can, but this is a pretty wide ranging experience. So all that to say, I think there's probably a lot of people walking around in the world who are still working on developing um, these different skills and intelligences. Yeah. I totally agree with that. I think it is um, a byproduct of complex trauma in a lot of ways. Like Mm. I talk about generational religious trauma. That's sort of how I've Mm. started framing it. Um, But the indoctrination with my family doesn't go back super far. But what Mm. does go back is authoritarianism and um, really harmful dysfunctional, abusive family dynamics. And so when my parents came to religion, came to this high control group, it fit because it felt familiar. And mm-hmm. so that is the that is the layer that we see that the religious component of it um, is its own entity in a way, but it just sort of fits under, it's like a niche <laughs> Mm-hmm. niche complex trauma like it, it's all interwoven but it, it's definitely um paralleled to families that may not be religious at all yes this um term you just use intergenerational religious trauma can you describe what that means to you 
Yeah, and I, I'm just calling it generational religious trauma. Generational. Um, yeah, so I'm really fascinated by generational trauma in general. So that's this idea that one generation passes down its trauma to the next generation, maybe without even having direct impact, that it can be passed down physiologically through our bodies and through our nervous system and the idea of epigenetics, which Mm. talk about gene expression and how when you're exposed to um, stressors that certain genes either shut down or wake up and how we can have trauma responses in our body from a trauma that parents or grandparents went through. So that's Mm. the fascinating part of our physiology and epigenetics and then how generational trauma really works because we've seen these cycles for many, many years. You know, therapists throughout the years and researchers have been looking at these cycles of trauma, but now there's sort of this also scientific backing for why some of that's happening. Um, But the generational religious trauma to me kind of encapsulates what's passed down through families, but also has this extra layer of the religious indoctrination, the religious trauma component. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like this, um, I don't know, I see it sort of like as a shell or something. Like it it can contain a lot of different things for different people, but it sort of wraps up a lot of intertwined experiences, Mm -hmm. I guess. (laughs) Yes, yes. And I think that is, I mean, yeah, the topic of generational trauma, I think, is really fascinating. And there's so much we don't know yet. And so, too, I hadn't put language to it to think about how religious experiences or indoctrination can get passed down. But as I'm thinking about my own family lineage, I think, yeah, that is it is interesting to see how um, how that particular type of trauma has been passed down. Mm-hmm. Um and so I'm, I'm wondering for you, either personally or in your work with your clients, how do you support people in finding the balance between like, okay, I can have empathy and compassion for the generational trauma that my parents and their parents experienced um, that they didn't, maybe didn't, didn't choose. And that was so harmful to me, and that experience is valid. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? The the uh, question I asked. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Completely. Yeah. yeah. That is something that comes up, I think, with every single one of my clients, um, because the people that you and I work with, I'm sure this is your experience as well, but they're a very um, open-hearted group of people that are just very curious and want to heal and get better and break these cycles. And some of them are really angry, really angry at what happened to them or what didn't happen for them in the case of emotional neglect that often happens in these groups. And it is that balance of how do I experience validation for the harm that was done to me while also being an empathetic human and observing that my parents or the generations that came before were kind of acting out of programming. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's the same thing that we have to almost extend to ourselves around compassion. Like we have to have so much self-compassion during our healing because we've made 
probably hurtful and harmful choices while we were indoctrinated, right? I know I did. <laughs> lots, yep, for sure. Lots of things I regret. And I have to meet myself with compassion around that. And when I knew better, I did better, to quote my Angelou, right? So it's the same thing with our parents. You know, they maybe didn't know better, but they also have had opportunities to make different choices, most likely. And so that it is fine to hold them to that degree of accountability of you and I have had to do this work, to break these cycles, to access resources, to go through healing, to be open-minded. And it is okay to have that expectation that your parents (laughs) do the same to a certain degree. So that's that balance, you know, that we walk, let's, you know, they, they, there is responsibility there on their end. Mm, yes. And especially when you're coming to them, maybe as an adult child and trying to explain some of the hurt that happened, you know, how they respond is very, I, I think, eye-opening about what they're able or willing to do. And some are just not willing to go there and they're not willing to accept responsibility. And it's, it's a shame because the church, churches do teach people to not take responsibility for themselves in a lot of ways. Mm. It's all mm. spiritual warfare and God is controlling everything and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, so it's, again, it's about that compassion. You can have compassion for their experience, but also know they, they did, harmful things. Mm, Yes. Yeah. And I think for me and for what I've observed with my clients is it's really important to let yourself be angry. Yeah. That needs to be part of, I I think, needs to be part of the process. Yeah, I I would definitely agree with that. And I would also say that um, anger is not a stage. Correct. Yes. <laughs> so you're not going to get angry and then be done with your anger. Yeah. Well, for most people, I shouldn't speak for everybody. <laughs> um, for me, anyway, and what I've noticed in a lot of people is it cycles. Like you might be mm-hmm. fine one day and ragey the next. Like this is just part of healing and it's part of grief. You know, anger is a part of grief. And you, you're not, I don't think really going to reach a point where you're done with your anger because these are severe injustices that have Mm -hmm. been done to you and that you may still be experiencing the effects of and may continue to experience the effects of for long into your life. Um, But what you said, it's not expecting an external source such as perhaps parents who aren't emotionally capable to do it or God to take it away to manage your anger. It's how do we learn how to feel the feeling and kind of let it move through our body in whatever way it needs to. Mm -hmm. Yes. And like you said, again and again and again, right? (laughs) Like in whatever way the feelings come up. I, uh, um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who like developed that model of grief, which I'm sure you know about for folks listening that includes anger, denial, acceptance, like I forget how they move. But um, from what I've understood of her work, it was never her intention for um, her model to be used as a way of like, you move through this stage, check, and then this one, check. (laughs) Like that was never how 
Um, and she, well, anyway, I don't need to get into like my like nerdy, the nerdy part of me is like kicking in, but it, uh, I digress. Anyway, yes, these are not stages. They are like, I don't know. They're, they're just much like more little fluid. pockets. Yeah, they're po- I think yeah. of them as like, I, I, when I draw a word picture for my clients, I say kind of draw a little circle around each emotion. And then what you'll do is you're going to ping from this one over to this one, to this one, to this one. And so you're creating mm-hmm. these wild constellations mm-hmm. <laughs> with these emotions. And yeah, it's yeah. kind of unpredictable which one yeah. you're going to land on from any given day yeah. <laughs> or hour yeah. or minute. Exactly. Yes. I, I'm so in this topic of anger, and you mentioned grief. I'm I'm curious about you know your thoughts, your experience on the role of grieving in this process of healing from religious harm or family harm. Well, I think it's so intertwined. Um, it, it's just as soon as you start waking up, you start grieving because you start to realize all of the losses. You know, I think when people first leave, there's some of those pretty stark, obvious losses, like loss of relationships, perhaps, of people who don't approve of your decision or people you simply can't be around because it's too triggering and they won't respect boundaries. There's loss of community and um, tradition and ritual, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I always knew what I was doing on Sunday morning Mm -hmm. um, and probably Wednesday night and Sunday night. And, you know, there there Mm -hmm. was a flow to it. There was consistency. And even though it was stifling in a lot of ways, it was predictable. So there's loss of routine. There's loss of kind of knowing what to expect. Um, then there's all the loss of opportunity. You know, I, I often, for me, this is the hardest one for me at this point in my life, which that could change, but it's, what would I be doing right now as a 36 year old, if I hadn't been indoctrinated, hadn't been homeschooled, had had more educational opportunities, um, had gone to a school without prioritizing God's calling on my life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I, you know, what career would I be in? And I don't regret the career I'm in now. I'm not saying that at all, but there's a curiosity there of all of these things that were never nurtured or developed that make me wonder that. And so even my day-to-day life and career and how I have structured things is a curiosity and kind of a grieving process in some ways too, if I just never had the opportunity to find out. And people outside of religion can probably have those same questions. You know, that's a product of upbringing in addition to religion. You know, it's not just religion that did that, but Yeah. So I think helping people catalog their losses is a really important Mm -hmm. starting point. It can feel really overwhelming. You know, I don't send people out of my session with homework to go catalog their losses, Mm -hmm. but it's something that organically happens, you know, where maybe I have to point out that's a loss. Like that's something to feel sad about or to feel angry about or to, like let's talk about mm. how you feel about that because mm. 
you may have experienced this in your work as well, but I think those of us who have been indoctrinated, we're very quick to dismiss our feelings and our experiences as invalid anyway. Um, and so just helping people to pause and notice, like, let's notice that. Mm, yes, yes. And it's so interesting that you bring up this this theme of like loss of opportunities, because that's what I've been sitting with personally a lot recently, too. Um, and, and also acknowledging the loss, but for me also thinking like, how can I create those experiences for myself now? Is there room to explore? Like for me personally, I, I was really scared to travel, really scared to leave my, my kind of bubble. Um, so for me now, a, a real like source of healing and excitement is traveling by myself like going out and and doing the like stereotypical like 20 something journey of like exploring the world um but like I yeah I I I guess I'm curious if, if this brings anything to mind for you but like are there ways to yes own the feelings around that loss and create new experiences from that place of loss. Yeah, I think that is what a lot of people think of when they think of reconstruction after deconstruction. Mm. I think that's kind mm. of what you're capturing there. And so when we allow ourselves to grieve, to really be aware of, of what exists in our world and what has to be acknowledged, once we are there, we're sort of sitting in all the rubble, right? Like <laughs> the yeah. deconstruction and we are grieving and, and grieving doesn't, grieving's not a stage and it doesn't have an end either, but we can begin to rebuild then. Like mm -hmm. what are we going to create with this one precious life we've been given when maybe your whole orientation has been towards the afterlife and eternal rewards and not even prioritizing mm. yourself in the here and now? So for me personally, and for everybody, this is going to look different, but for me personally, it's like, how do I make each day what I want it to be now? Because each day matters. And yeah. growing up, I believe that today doesn't matter. I think yeah. I, I really wrote that in prayer journals. <laughs> you know, mm. today doesn't matter. All that matters is getting to be in heaven with you, God. And like, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I wrote those things. Mm. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> learning that today matters, like what we do today matters. And it could be sitting on the sofa and drinking a cup of tea and reading a book and that's all you're doing. And that matters because it's relaxing and it's nurturing mm -hmm. to your soul. So mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, part of that rebuilding or even when we think of the loss of opportunity, it's, it's having to actually take responsibility for our lives yeah. in a way that we didn't really have to before because God kind of dictated everything, right? Or church oh. leaders or whoever was influential sort of steered us. And now we have to take ownership of the fact that we're really responsible for our lives and we are steering this ship. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. Yes. And it's, it is that rebuilding. And it's interesting that you talk about travel because I grew up very fearful too. And I think it's because I was just fearful of the world and my family didn't travel. We were very poor growing up. 
So we didn't have mm-hmm. resources to vacation or really go anywhere anyway. So that's been a huge passion of mine. That's really, mm-hmm. and a, you know, prioritizing and a, a, a big goal for my life now mm-hmm. is to really go on trips. And even if it's you know, trips within the U.S. to just have new experiences. Um, yeah. So it, I think it's so important. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, what is it about? There's like a certain subset of adolescent girls raised in the church who just like journaled all their prayers to God. Like there are a few of us out there and it is like a very niche subset. (laughs) Um, Because, yep, I was one of those. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I, now that you're actually calling that out, I think I just thought that was normal. (laughs) You know, I didn't know. Like, I wasn't really instructed to do it. It just sort of came naturally to me, but I could never really just sit and talk to God. Like I hated prayers at church. I have ADHD, (laughs) so that's probably part of it. But I Mm -hmm. think writing grounded me in a way and just allowed me to go into this flow state that felt more connected. And I still journal. And now I'm just connecting to myself, which is what I was doing all along. But (laughs) so it's still a useful tool. And I, I, you know, again, I grieve a little bit that so much of my journaling was done in deference to this father figure, but here we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 There's so much more I could say about that. And, um, and I know there's so many other topics that I wanted to talk to you about, so we'll have to do like some other conversations, <laughs> but I'm, I'm mindful of our time, of your time, and wondering if you um, have some time to pivot and do some of these rapid fire, just random questions. Sure. Yeah. Okay. First question is, what song would be the background music for your life today? So keep in mind that my song choices are always related to gym workouts because otherwise I'm listening to podcasts and audiobooks. So (laughs) right now it's Good As Hell by Lizzo. That's the song that's kind of on repeat at the gym. (laughs) (laughs) Like your choice to play it or it's on the speakers at the gym? No, I'm listening to it on repeat. And that's what I do with songs. I just like the same song, just repeat Mm -hmm. constantly. Yeah. Until I'm sick of it, I'll never listen to it again. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) I get that. Um, what is the weirdest food combination you enjoy? Okay. So I haven't had this in a long time, although I was thinking about bringing it back recently. It's a peanut butter and pickle sandwich. Ooh. And I'm talking dill pickle. I know. Okay. I see your face. You're, you're <laughs> I don't alarmed. like pickles. I don't like pickles. <laughs> you don't like so pickles? <laughs> I'm coming from a biased point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my I had an aunt who um introduced me to this and I'm pretty sure it was a weird pregnancy craving for her and then she introduced it to me when I was a teenager and then it just kind of stuck. But it's something about Funny. the sweet from the peanut butter and the salty from the pickle and then you have to toast the bread and I it sounds uh-huh. very very bizarre. I don't knock until you try it, but you don't try cuz you don't like pickles. But anybody who likes peanut butter <laughs> and pickles, they should try it together. Interesting. You're the second person who's given me a pickle-related answer to this question. (laughs) It's interesting what people do with pickles. Um, All right. So go try it if you like pickles and peanut butter. Um, If you had to get a tattoo today, what would you get? 
I wish I could answer this question because I think people who get tattoos are always so cool and unique and I admire them because like they really know themselves, put something permanently on their bodies. I think I have commitment issues and I can just not wrap my mind around adding something permanent. And it's not a moral thing. This has nothing to do with my religious indoctrination. This is a commitment issue thing. And this is also, I think my perfectionism, because I don't believe a tattoo artist is going to do it properly. <laughs> so oh, that's you're, fair. You're seeing yeah. all of my, my other baggage coming up now around <laughs> this question. <laughs> Well, so I can't so, answer that one. <laughs> that's okay. I appreciate that honesty. And it's so interesting that you and I come from very similar upbringings. And yet I am the person who I have become the person who will walk in and get a random tattoo. And for me, it's not because I know myself any better than you know yourself. <laughs> I think I've like embraced nihilism and um. that like, none of this actually really matters. So if this is what I want to do with my time and my body today, then like, great, I might regret it 30 years from now. Oh, well, we'll deal with that when it comes. I love that. We need to spend more time together. Maybe I'll get like some more of that. I need more of that. Uh, and, and perhaps I will get more grounded. <laughs> I feel like you might provide that. Um, (laughs) perhaps this is a difference no I'm reading too much into it I was gonna say a difference between cat and dog people let's just I need to end I need to end the analogy and go have another cup of coffee Um, maybe it's a difference uh, between pickle and non-pickle people I don't know let's go back to that (laughs) that's funny um okay when was the last time you laughed so hard that you cried Okay, so <laughs> have you seen those Instagram reels with the fake danger where there's two wow. people and <laughs> one person will suddenly pretend that there's something horrifying in the space and will begin to run away or scream or point at it. And then it captures the other person reacting and they're freaking out, but they don't see anything. That but they're funny. responding to the person who's freaking out around them. And these reels are just like clips of multiple, like, I don't know, 10 different ones. And you just see them one after another. And I'm on the floor. I can't even get up. It's so That's funny. funny. <laughs> uh, now that we've talked about it, perhaps my phone is listening and we'll put those in my algorithm. <laughs> yeah, I think it's called fake danger. So if you would look it up, danger. even I'm sure you would find it. They're awesome. I love that. I love a good reel. Um, what is one item on your bucket list? Okay. So speaking of travel, I have been wanting to go to Santorini for quite a while now. I don't know what the draw is. I think it's because the sisterhood of the traveling pants from years ago, who knows, but something about those blue roofs and the white and the ocean. Mm. (sighs) I want to go to Santorini. So that's on my bucket list. I'm not sure when it's going to happen. I'm trying to prioritize an international trip once a year, but we'll see when it actually makes it onto the <laughs> to travel cool. list. Do you have an international trip already planned for 2024? So 2024, I'm actually going to Maui with Michael because we are getting married, which oh. I don't think I told you. I don't know if I announced that I was no. engaged, but... Oh. 
Yeah, so we're going to Maui. We're prioritizing that as our big trip this year. We went to Europe last year and did um, uh, London and Edinburgh. And so this year we're going to Maui, so... Nice. Oh, Not well, international, but it's it's a long flight, so it feels pretty <laughs> pretty big. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And um yeah. We don't need to get into colonialism, but it could be international had our history looked a little different. <laughs> Valid. And I love Hawaiian culture and it is very much like if you kind of veer away from the tourist traps of the island, I mean it is amazing to experience the culture there too. Yeah. Oh, that's so exciting. Awesome. Um, what is something you are reading or watching right now? So I just started watching the Twin Flames documentary. Have you seen that? Or Leaving the I Twin have, Flames Universe? I, think it's I listened to a podcast. Um, I've found that I actually, my part of my self-care recently has been not watching cult documentaries. It's way too activating. Uh, <laughs> I see that. I get that. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. Good boundary. Yes. So um, I try to limit myself. I watched the one on the um, IBLP or IF, mm-hmm. IFB. I, the, I, the one. IBLP. Happy, shiny Happy People. So not the Shiny Happy People. So it must have been the IFB, the Independent Fundamentalist Baptist Church. Okay. Um, I can't call what it is. But anyway. So that one was enough weeks ago that I felt it was okay to take on another one. So I am watching yeah. the Twin Flames universe one, which, oh, I mean, yep. <laughs> it, all, it, yeah. it, is, it is a little triggering. Because when yeah. I got out of fundamentalist evangelicalism, I kind of pivoted over to the new age stuff for a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we all, a lot of us do a pendulum swing. So I'm kind of like, oh, I recognize a lot of that <laughs> mentality and that language as well so yes but it's very good so far yeah it is really fascinating um and I love people like you in my life who I can ask about the documentaries and I don't (laughs) actually have to watch them um what is something that strangers often incorrectly assume about you I don't really know the answer to this one because they you know try not to meet too many strangers (laughs) that's fair not to really go out into the world um I know one thing that I got a lot growing up was people would think I was really quiet or really reserved and when they got to know me I can be I call myself an outgoing introvert because when I know somebody I can be very talkative I can be pretty dynamic um but when I'm just getting to know someone, I am a little more, I'm a little more guarded, a little more reserved. I was very socially awkward growing up because of the way I was raised. <laughs> mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I would say that that's probably, I don't know if that holds true to this day, but that is a misconception I got for many years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what emoji do you use the most? So on my social media, I often use the yellow heart. I like that one because that's sort of the color of friendship, I think, or loyalty Mm -hmm. or, and I use the sunflower a lot because that just to me symbolizes growth. And Mm -hmm. I use the little sparkle one too, because I Mm -hmm. just, I don't know. 
I, I don't see God as directing things, but I see it just seems like things are magical sometimes. So those are mm. kind of the three I use the most frequently, yeah. I'd say. I love that. What is your favorite scent? So my favorite scent would be freshly brewed coffee that I wake up smelling. Mm. meaning I am not the one who made it, (laughs) meaning it is traveling to my bedside by someone else who Mm. has made it for me. Mm. So I love the smell, but I love waking up to the smell because it symbolizes I'm about to have it without even having to get out of bed. (laughs) Mm, Yes. We have never met in real life, but we should because I love to make coffee. I love the ritual and the routine of making coffee for other people. Um, So when the stars align, I will make you coffee. Oh, that would be amazing. (laughs) It's a date. (laughs) Um, Okay. Last question. What is your favorite place on the planet? So that would have to be my bed. I love my bed. It's my nest. It's not just where I sleep. This is a very bad thing for a therapist to acknowledge, <laughs> but I I love to just sit in bed and read in the morning. If I'm feeling, you know, tired or stressed, I like to go crawl into bed and just rest. It's just, it's wonderful. Yeah. Now, if we're talking about someplace outside of my home, I would have to say mm-hmm. currently it is Maui, which is one of the reasons Michael and I are venturing there <laughs> to get mm. married. So that's probably my next favorite place. That's more like a location, I would say. Yes, yes. But I love your bed as an answer because theoretically you have access to that no matter the budget. No matter like the plans, it's always there for you. And I work from home, so I can go visit it and hang out with it all day long yes. if I want to. Yes. I try I not that. to do my sessions in bed with my clients. I have never done a session in bed. Yeah. I do draw a boundary there. Yeah. Outside that of sounds that. sounds healthy. <laughs> Megan, thank you so much for being here. Um, if people want to get to know you more, follow your work, how can they do that? And is there anything you want people to know about? your work and what you're offering? Um, so Instagram continues to be where I'm most active. Um, that's reclaiming self.therapy is my handle. My website's sort of the portal to everything else where you can find information about working with me. Um, I post a new blog post every one to two weeks. So that's a good resource for people as well. You can sign up for my email list. I send out um, a week a weekly email on Thursdays just for people recovering from religious harm. And I will soon be releasing a program or a course for people who are raised in high control religions um, and who are really navigating this generational religious trauma that we were talking about. So if you want updates about that and when that's going to be accessible, I would say go to my website, get on my email list, because that's where the updates will be happening. Yes. Awesome. I am subscribed to the email list and I think they're incredibly useful and they're not too long. Um, so it's like you can sit down and read it like in a fairly short amount of time, which I appreciate. Um, yeah. I have to try. I have to try to keep it short because <laughs> I can be wordy sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I get it. I have a podcast for that reason so that I have an excuse to be wordy. Um, Love that. Anyway, thank you so much, Megan. This has been a delight. Thanks for having me. 
This has been another conversation with your friend, the therapist. To follow the podcast, you can find us on Instagram at your friend, the therapist pod. And you can follow my work as a trauma therapist and yoga teacher on Instagram at Carrie Fillion Psychotherapy or my website, CarrieFillion.com. I am committed to keeping the show ad-free and accessible to everyone. So if you would like to make a donation to support the work of your friend, the therapist, you can find a link to my PayPal in the show notes. You can also support the show by listening and subscribing on Substack, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. If this show has been helpful for you, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Your support means the world. Until next time, take care and stay well.